Welcome to season two, episode seven of Community is a Verb. My name is Connor Kaysen, your co-host here at CIAV. And next to me via the powers of the internet is my strapping co-host, Mr. Well-Traveled. How you doing today? Strapping, all right. We got a new one, a new adjective for us. Thank you, thank you. I'm doing well, but I have to be honest with you. I have been really sad this week. I've been glued to the TV screen watching the Derek Chauvin murder trial. And it has been both captivating and, and just incredibly disheartening. I have, black, I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends. And I, I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights, I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life but it's like it's not what I should have done it's what he should have done What's going through your mind during that time period um, uh, disbelief thank you why guilt? Um, if I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. So um, I, I think with this episode, I'm glad we're not diving too deep into that. But I, I definitely have, you know, had a really emotional week. Yeah. Yeah, I can completely agree with you. It's it's just a weird feeling to to see or to what we experienced in June, July, last summer, and then to see it kind of like coming full circle and now like turning into an actual like court case and seeing all of the legal proceedings happen from uh, choosing a jury, right? And like talking about evidence and then now starting to see uh, witnesses be on the stand and answering questions and almost how every single witness has to relive these terrifying moments um it's it it has been i haven't really been able to watch it so much on tv i've only wanted to read about it uh for for similar reasons it's just like it's hard to keep reliving it over and over and over again and keep seeing uh kind of not only the pain on the witnesses faces but just uh the pain overall that this has caused and so reading it has been a little easier uh emotionally on me just to kind of like digest everything that's happening and we're going to cover this more as it goes on. We kind of decided that there's three weeks more of the trial, including the final verdict, which I know is going to be a, a big topic for us. So we didn't want to dive too much into the details. But are there any other thoughts that you wanted to share before we, we kind of jump into some other topics? You know, for me, uh, I can completely understand why someone like you would not want to watch it. It is very traumatic. And you're watching every single day for hours upon end, over and over again, the murder of a single person from different angles, close-ups, far away, store cam footage, body cam footage, cell phone footage. I have never seen this much video of a human being being murdered, except for in a movie. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it, it, I think that's the most shocking part of it. And I recognize that every time you watch something like that, 
you're re-traumatized. I wasn't there, but I feel traumatized. But imagine if you were there, you that was recorded on your cell phone, right? And then now you have to sit in a courtroom on camera yourself and tell the world what you saw and then be cross-examined by a criminal defense attorney whose goal is to discredit you in order to help the murderer escape charges and or escape this charge, these charges and avoid going to prison. It's, it's incredibly hard to watch that as well. Until this point, I had only thought about what if that were me? What if I were George Floyd? Or what if someone I knew were George Floyd? But it never occurred to me what it must be like to be going about your daily life, doing whatever it is you normally do, buying a soda, going and get getting some snacks with your friends, some lottery tickets, and then suddenly you come across a scene like that. You become a witness to a murder. You record it because you know someone's got to document that. And then your entire life changes and you become a part of the story. You become a part of the trial. Your life is not the same after that. Many of those bystanders who are now witnesses, they've had to change schools. They've had to leave their jobs. They've moved out of the city of Minneapolis. It never occurred to me what that must be like when you're put in that position. And they've experienced in my view, they've shown incredible bravery because they are still going forward with this. After all that has happened to them, having to witness this, having to have the nightmares about the fact that they couldn't do more and feeling guilty, and some of them have expressed that, then now you're on trial, or you're not on trial, they're not on trial, sorry. They are what they are participating in a trial as witnesses, and the whole world is watching them. And then they still have to go on with their lives. I think that's a very brave thing to do, especially given the fact that they are testifying against someone who had no problem killing someone in the middle of the street in broad daylight on camera in front of children, that's who you're testifying against. And that person felt so comfortable to do that, I believe, because they felt like they could get away with it. And in order to get away with it, they would have to have protection, protection from the same system you're now wrapped up in. So I may be thinking about this very broadly. I don't know how they're thinking about it, but I certainly could not imagine being in that situation right now. It just seems very, very difficult. And many of the witnesses, they're very young. Many of them are 18, 19, early 20s. I, I, I feel for them very much. I also wonder how they're doing because we, we don't know. Um, I hope they're okay. Yeah, I, I think you put that perfectly. Just the amount of grief and trauma that no that they didn't anticipate, right? It was just uh it, I don't know if wrong place, wrong time is really the right phrase for it, but yeah, they you know right, they were just there. Um and they happened to get caught up in the whirlwind of of a horrible, horrible incident. And yeah, it's gotta be difficult yeah. to to relive that, to listen to your nine one one phone call. Um, mm -hmm. right, just just 
so difficult, so challenging. And, and yeah, it's, it's just sad all the way around. It is, but we still have more to go. It's this trial's not over. So, you know, we'll be staying tuned or, and, and, or reading about it because that's, <laughs> that's a lot, that's a less traumatic form <laughs> of keeping it on top of this story. Well, well as this year's been going on, it, there's just something new every week, right? Like when we do the yeah. show, uh, we were talking, we were talking off, off the air about, you know, how do we prioritize the topics and everything this week? And every, every time we talk about the show, it was like, Oh, we could bump it to the next show, but then something else happens. And it was like, yeah. Ben, it gets bumped, uh, lost. I know there's, there's a few topics that we never even return to that we, that maybe one day we'll be, uh, we'll have the space to do it, but, uh, let's transition a little bit into today's main topic. And that, is all of the headlines that are coming out of lawmakers out of Georgia and specifically all of the voting rights laws. Should we call them voting rights laws or changes that they have made um, and, and passed in their legislation that restrict voting rights? And then there's been a yeah. huge uproar over this last week uh, from individuals and corporations now um, denouncing all the actions that were taken. Georgia will take another step toward ensuring our elections are secure, accessible, and fair. But critics point to myriad other provisions. It shortens the window to get an absentee ballot. It ends signature verification. Instead, absentee voters must have a driver's license number or send a copy of another state ID. And it makes it a crime to offer food or water to voters who are standing in line. And so what is your kind of first reaction, Mr. Well-Traveled, to what's going on in Georgia? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I saw what happened on the news, like most people. My first reaction was, I would say, one, not of shock. I, I I, I don't I don't even know exactly what I felt in that moment. And I, I think it was more that I I expected this. I, I knew this was coming. I knew this would this is because this is what happens in, in the history of this country when there are when advancements that black people, black voters specifically make, it's always met with violence, one, and two, more restrictive laws. And we talked about that during the election, and we talked about that after the election, that these Republican politicians were going to do these things. They're advancing laws like this in many states, including Texas. And they said that they were going to do this during the election. So I believed them, and now it's happening. So my reaction was more of like, yeah, of course this is happening yeah to, to say it's a surprise is uh not a surprise really at all it's something that uh, uh, you and i included right we've talked about this before how uh this isn't the first certainly not going to be the last and this is a reaction to the state of georgia turning i mean what, what they seem to be calling purple now um but right flipping both senate seats and for the first time in decades voting for a Democratic president, that this is just a severe reaction to all of those changes and to uh, the fight that 
Stacey Abrams and the Democratic Party and everyone else that we avoid, uh, avoid um, mentioned in the previous podcast about getting people out to go vote. Right. And like the big push, I know one of the changes that happened in the law was like getting people to register to vote for runoff elections. They're, they're more or less trying to get rid of that. Uh, also, with like how absentee ballots are going to go, they want it to be pretty much you are going to vote in rank and file order for the runoff election in your first ballot. Um, you know, just to speed up the process, I'll put in quotes, uh, it is how, how they're, how they're arguing. And then there's the, the, the topic that got the most headlines was this rule about being able to serve or pass out water and services or just anything to help people waiting in line. I believe it's, uh, within a hundred and maybe 150 feet of a, a polling place. Uh, but more or less, the, the big headline is you legally can't pass out water. It's a misdemeanor crime to pass out water to people waiting in the lines. And and that's when when you hear that, I find it hard for anybody to disagree <laughs> about how crazy that is to impose a law like that. What do you think specifically about that topic? You know, as I mentioned, I, I expected all of those things. None of those things were surprised to me because of the history of not just Georgia, but the history of uh, what the, they are calling now in the media, the war on voting rights. When I started working on, you know, technology to support voters last year, I had to do a lot of research to, under, to fully understand the problem. And the problem has been for over a hundred years now, I guess we're working on a hundred and what, 50, 60 years, something like this. The problem has been that you have people who have power who get to make the rules about who gets to participate in decision-making in the society. And when the people who don't have the power begin to organize themselves, play by the rules that were created by the people who are in power, the rules change. And they are changing because the group in power wants to stay in power and they will do whatever it takes to stay in power. It has nothing to do, in my view, with anything, with anything else the more difficult they can make voting for the people who don't have power, the more that they, they believe, the more that they will be able to maintain power because fewer people who oppose them will, will be able to vote. That is their calculation. That is not how I think it will work. Because in our last election in 2020, there were restrictive Right, voting rights laws in place then. And you see how Stacey Abrams, we talked about Stacey Abrams and the other Black women organizers in Georgia specifically, how they organized even with those laws in place. I think that's why there, in my view, there's a miscalculation because people who are bound and determined to fight for their rights and their freedom, they're going to figure it out. I am hopeful. 
actually, that we will be able to maintain engagement between elections so that people are aware of these restrictive laws. They're aware of the strategies for being able to go around them, go under them, go through them. And I am hopeful because you do have people like Stacey Abrams at the national level. Her name is known all over this country, perhaps even the world. And people are paying attention. People are educating themselves. People in other states understand the, the critical nature of voter disenfranchisement in other places where they don't live and don't vote. They understand that, sure, I might live in California and California might be reliably blue, but it doesn't matter if people in Georgia can't vote because the candidate that I want at the national level requires them to be able to have the power to vote. Exactly. The policy that I want passed at the national level requires a certain makeup in the Congress that we cannot get if those folks in Georgia cannot vote. So it matters to everybody. This is not a Georgia problem, not a Texas problem. It's an American participation in the democratic process problem. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's been uh, very interesting to see not only the national attention that this is getting, which is which is great, right? This is probably only to the benefit that a lot, I mean, throughout history, these things have been passed all over and it didn't get this kind of attention. So it's really, it's, it's at least a somewhat of a positive change. Um, and it does affect, like you said, it affects everybody because we are already seeing the laws that are written up in the legislation and how they kind of can tweak their rules are getting disseminated to other states, right? There are, it's like, I think I heard like 40 other states also have uh, voting rights rules being put into uh at least into debate in their houses and senates in those states to uh, curb what some people would call um, uh, fraudulent voting systems uh, up up to this point, kind of in reaction to all of the mail-in ballots. And so, uh, right, especially when we talk about Florida, Texas, Arizona, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, all those like really battleground states if those changes kind of follow, it's it's just going to be unfair and it's going to be, you know, it's going to cause more and more problems uh, with restricting voting rights. Yeah. And so uh, I have two questions. You ended about uh, nationwide voting standards. So I want to go into that a little bit because I, I saw that um, Congress already passed earlier this month a nationwide voting standards. Um, and then it's obviously got to pass through the Senate, which, as we know, is seems to never get done anymore. It seems like it's impossible to get the votes that you need to pass anything in the Senate. Uh, but, but what did you have in mind in particular that you think that, uh, right, because there, we're, we're going to get into the argument between like states' rights and federal rights, right? And like, who has it? But I, I and you would probably agree that like, there's got to be a base level of like a nationwide standard of how we're going to do things, because these are national elections, right? I get like, the local elections are going to operate in a little bit different way. But when it comes to like these national uh, elections in particular, we've got to have some type of system of consistency, so that every American has the same equal rights, no matter where they live. I agree with you on that 100%. 
that is a flaw, right, in the model. There yeah. are arguments that I think can be made, though, both ways. In the last election, we saw that we have a decentralized system. This decentralized system may have saved us because of the nature of being decentralized, because no one can make the argument that the whole system was rigged. People were making that argument, remember? Uh, but you point. can't when the system is decentralized. There are hundreds of different voting practices and rules in this country. They are based on the state that you live in. Every state has its own rules for voting. Then you bring that down to the county level. Each county has its own process for voting. Then bring that down to the city level. Each city has its own process for its residents. And when you think about that, right, you then have the ability to really say, well, there's no systemic issue when someone is alleging voter fraud and every single layer has been investigated. So the city level, the county level, the state level, and no fraud has been found. It's, it's, that's, that's very difficult to do to allege systemic fraud. On the flip side, right, as a voter, there is no consistency. And it's very difficult to understand if people are being treated unfairly because every single state and county does it differently. And it's hard to follow when changes are made, how they are going to impact voters in different places. And it usually doesn't become clear until you're in the middle of an election and you see that people are not able to access the ballot box. So, you know, from our conversations last year around election time that I am very much pro national voter standards. So this is an experience standard, not necessarily a legal standard for how vote, voting should be conducted. But I do know that there was some um, research, uh, or, or sorry, a presidential commission that published a study back in 2012 that talked about what some general standards should look like. Number one on that is no one should wait 30 minutes, more than 30 minutes in line to vote. That I think is a very doable standard to put in place anywhere, anywhere yes. where there's in-person voting. That does, however, require that all of the voting centers are run more efficiently than they are today. Many of the voting uh, commissions around the country will say, well, we don't have the money for that. We don't have the money for the technology to help us run efficiently. Well, that sounds to me like a lazy excuse because in my process for trying to build my own app, I found that MIT has free software for municipalities and for states so that they can actually run more efficiently based on MIT's own research. So this is, for me, that's a bare minimum, right? We, we can change the voter experience. It, it's going to be a lot harder, right, to change the laws. And in the past, the federal government was more active in trying to oversee when voting laws changed, the government, the federal government was involved in approving those changes or not reviewing those changes. And I think that's really one way that we can continue to address 
uh, voter discrimination. But that would, I think, to get that oversight back would require, coming back to what you mentioned, an act of Congress and the Senate. And it's they seem, even with control of both houses, to be very challenged. I'm being very friendly right now, very kind <laughs> to them, <laughs> challenged in their decision-making. And they're, they are having difficulty even getting on the same page as a party. While this issue also is, should be, in my view, uh, one that they too want to be invested in if they, if they care about their own power being maintained, I, I am not super optimistic right now because of there are so many problems. There are so many challenges that come at the federal level leaders every day, every week that have been longstanding problems. And the way that they're trying to address them is within a governing framework that makes it very difficult to address these bigger systemic issues. Yeah, the the, the tangle of knots uh, when it comes to making these changes is is a very, very dense ball of trouble, <laughs> really what it comes yeah. down to. Um, and so to kind of wrap a little bow on that topic, and then I want to transition a little bit more to some action. Uh, there were this week three separate lawsuits filed. I'm getting this from the AP News, but it's a lawsuit from the New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, and Rise Inc. all filed uh, lawsuits that the changes violate the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. So uh, I think this is going to take a while to play out. I mean, this feels like Supreme Court level uh, cases that are going to come out, and uh, this will not be the last time that you and I talk about it, or really our country has to deal with this. And, and obviously, it's going to branch out to every state, and like you mentioned, it's going to affect all of us. So, for the, for the last part of the episode, we always like to talk about action and change, and and how you know from us from an individual level, or maybe from a corporate level. And 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 I'll start because. Uh, at the beginning, when all of the news was kind of breaking about these laws that passed, it's always the individuals, right? Like Twitter rises up um, and everyone kind of speaks there. And then more important individuals uh, kind of get educated about it and they start speaking up. And it always takes the corporations a couple of days later to uh, run their announcements through their HR department and then release those announcements. And across the Internet, growing calls to boycott Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola and Home Depot, all Georgia based giants. The message that I want them to take away from this is that voter suppression is bad for business. It's bad for your bottom line it it was slow but we did eventually get to coca-cola and delta um and some of these corporations coming and speaking out and the one that stuck out to me because i'm uh, the sport the sports person of the show uh was major league baseball decided that their all-star game this year and their draft event uh they're moving out of the state of georgia they were both in atlanta um and so that actually was a level of change and, and baseball's been uh, 
a little slower, I would say, on the activism compared to a lot of the other major U.S. sports. Uh, but for them to actually go like, we're pulling those events out of your state completely as a reaction, I thought was, well, like actually like a big corporation doing something. I mean, that's going to bring millions and millions of dollars into those communities um, and, and affects levels of so many, right? From all the employees that work at all these stadiums and all of the activations and events that happen to a lot of times all these events are big fundraisers for local charities. Um, and so there, there's a huge ripple effect of pulling these two big events out of the state. We're not sure where it's going to go, but it was an action that I thought was um, just good, good to see. So much more than writing a, a letter, right? De when you when you put out a press release that denounces the changes, uh, that's that that's good. You know that's a start, but that's not really like you doing something, right? That's not changing where the dollars are going or how that's impacting uh, future elections and and the people of Atlanta. And so it was good to see that and actually follows a trend. The NBA did something similar a couple years ago with pulling their All Star game out of Charlotte in North Carolina after they passed some. Uh, um, some voting laws as well. And so it was just good to see someone doing something really immediately in response to it, uh, especially from an organization that hasn't been kind of on the forefront of these issues at this point. You know, I, I, I like, I like that, that I, I, I think that's one of the actions that I support in the in the way that it impacts the economy, right? Because everything, this is, this is a capitalist society, so everything is about money. When you take money away from people, it gets their attention. Yes. I do worry, though, those actions hurt workers more yep. than owners of businesses or even the politicians themselves, because yeah. while they are you know, leaders in the government in those places, they may or may not necessarily be financially impacted. Where what I like when is when corporations take a another approach or additional approaches. And one I would say is oh almost all corporations have lobbyists or political action committees or both. And in my view, oh, and corporate donations, I should mention, they make corporate donations to politicians. And so in my view, what I'd like to see is a suite, right, or a portfolio of actions that includes public denouncement in the media, also includes any events or activities that promote that state or promote the place where the legislation that, that, that they have publicly denounced is, is, takes, takes effect. Also, I want to see a public announcement that they are no longer going to donate to those candidates. Yes. Because here's what I think can very easily happen, that Coca-Cola, for example, can publish a, a tweet or an a, a press release saying they denounced the law and turn around when Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, is up for re-election and put money into his campaign. And no one would even really pay attention to it or think about it. It won't get covered on the news. It will be public record, but that would be on the voter 
to figure out if that has taken place or not. And that's really where I think you get a politician's attention. But the law has been passed now. So I want to see when it is re-election time, where do these companies stand? Are they simply going to say, well, we disagree with some of the things these politicians have said and done, but we're going to go ahead and fund them, fund their help fund their campaigns because we think overall they're they're going to give us what we want. I don't know, but I suspect that probably we will see in the end that these corporations financially contribute to their campaigns. I I would agree. I I think Georgia will be interesting because there is there's been so much attention right they kind of created this this focus um and i think that will get more attention as we get to these next elections that come up it's the other states that i'm more worried about right there's there's not a lot of talk happening about what's going on in arizona right and so it are are some of those going to kind of like go under the radar because we are so focused on Georgia? It, it'll be interesting just to see how that plays out. Um, I know there's also been some heat for um, Hollywood and really all these movie studios that have been, I mean, I see that Georgia logo at the end of movies, like all the time, there is a lot of film production. And I know there's been some criticism of those organizations that during the black lives matter movement, they're really outspoken and coming up. But now that their work and their jobs are kind of affected by this. There, there hasn't been as much like reaching out because uh, a lot of work from Hollywood and movie production is happening there. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that changes if it if it changes at all. Um, and then lastly, the the narrative and the quote that I saw, uh, which which really seems very obvious, but it's interesting that it's it's starting to like physically take place is that racism is bad for business. <laughs> right. And and I saw that quote and it's one of those like, duh, right? Like should I guess we should have made not been making that assumption, right? Like I'm a business owner and that sounds pretty obvious to me. Um but it really hasn't historically it has it hasn't necessarily been bad for business. Um or, or corporations don't act in that way. And so I'm curious to see, are these changes going to continue to come as companies speak up? And and the more they speak up, their employees are going to hold them accountable as well, which, uh, right, is is the minimum. When these companies put out these press releases, it um, the employees take that to heart and then a lot of uh, they expect their employers to follow those those words that they said and employees will be calling out these corporations if they don't follow it so uh, back to the point of seeing these donations hopefully we do see a change and coca-cola is not putting money into uh these campaigns and if they do i'm hoping there is going to be uh specifically the employees of these companies to speak up and be like that's not what you said back in march and april right when we were talking about this but but we'll see we we tend as a society to uh, move on really quickly on these things. And so uh, o- only time's going to tell on this one. But I-, I thought that was very interesting that uh, we're getting to a point that racism is now officially bad for business, um, which, yeah, it-, it was just like it was, a- it was a wild headline to see. And if at least we're putting it out there. Yeah, well, racism maybe is bad for some businesses, 
but other businesses seem to be thriving on racism. I actually went to a presentation about this where many uh, lobbyists and political action committees have been moving over because of the way that, you know, they call it culture wars. I don't necessarily agree with that terminology, but there, there's a specific ideology that lines up with certain businesses and their customers have the same ideology. I think something like Walmart, Dick's Sporting Goods, and I can't remember like a third one, but their customer base is primarily Republican. And then you have companies like what I'm wearing today, Patagonia, and I can't think of any other examples, but Patagonia is the, is the one that comes to mind. That is a nice sweater, by the way. I, I've like, he looks, <laughs> he looks so cozy today. <laughs> it's actually cold today, surprisingly, in April. But I, I, I recognize, and also the research shows, that the shoppers of Patagonia tend to be Democrats. And they also understand that. And their marketing reflects that their uh, choices in which issues to speak out on reflect that. And so corporations too take sides and they use that to connect with their customers. This is also still part of capitalism. Yep. You, can, you can market anything, including worldview. And I think that many consumers today expect companies to line up with their worldview, right? Yes. You don't want to spend money at a place that supports politicians who create laws that restrict your voting rights or restrict uh, other freedoms that you expect to have. So it's complicated. I mean, being an employee of one of those companies doesn't mean you can't speak truth to power or that you can't speak out against leadership, but you do have to consider how that might impact your job and yeah. whether you even get to keep your job. So it's it, it, it's a complicated thing. I understand where these folks in the entertainment industry might be feeling conflicted or stuck because of that. Yeah, you're totally right. And when it comes to us as individuals, uh, very much like the corporations, right? When it comes to risking your paycheck and your livelihood, um, this your decision-making process changes, um, right? That's And that's a survival mechanism. And then that mm -hmm. totally makes sense. And, and yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch as time goes on. Uh, I know we're hitting our time limit here, Mr. Well-Traveled. And so do you have any final thoughts, things that uh, maybe we skipped or you didn't get, get to express in some of the other topics before we close out here? You know, I want to touch on just briefly here. The We haven't talked a lot about the pandemic in a while on the show, but for the purposes of our future audiences, the things are opening up. The world is changing. And you sent me um, a, a tweet earlier around traffic in Seattle at the airport. And I, I think my response was, I'm not surprised at that because it, the, the world is open. Vaccines are in most places available to people 16 and up. And people are traveling more, they're, they're, people are ready to get back to life. And I think in some ways that's exciting, in other ways it's a bit of a problem because at the same time, we're also seeing a spike in the number of cases. But we're seeing a spike in the number of cases within the population that 
hasn't had access to vaccines until literally this week. <laughs> so I think that that's important to call out uh, for anyone who's going back in time and taking a look at what happened during this moment. But I'm optimistic about having a different summer than I had last summer. Yes. But for right now, um, I think I will continue to follow the CDC's advice and just stick to the house and to uh, into being around people who I know are vaccinated because it's still, you can still get the virus even with being vaccinated. Yeah. From what I'm saying, the, the vaccine is mostly about making sure you don't go to the hospital. Um, not mm -hmm. that you can't get it. And we'll talk more about the vaccines in, in the next episode, but you're right. Just to like document the changes and this whole year has been historic, right? Something that we'll never forget about, but you can like, actively see the world changing right now with uh the traffic patterns in seattle are always I, I live right off mercer which has like historically been the worst traffic spot in all of seattle and i haven't seen traffic there really at all for a year and it's starting to creep back in and then i saw that video at the airport and uh tra traffic which has been horrendous in seattle we, i kind of forgot about it here, like over the last year, it's been very easy to commute. And I mean, the freeways have been wide open and, and that's going to be a big change. And that's just something that's like right in front of us. Uh, but yeah, I can't lie that I'm giddy about summer. I'm just so excited. Uh, I think there's going to be this like incredible energy from people to uh, be out and explore and uh, indulge on the, the things that they've missed out in the last year. And I think it, uh, uh, it, it might actually be the real summer of love this time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. World Travel, that concludes season two, episode seven. Thank you very much. As always, joining me here on today's special date is four, three, two, one. Wow. I <laughs> we'll had never, no idea. We'll never see that again. Pretty cool. Well, thanks everyone for listening to Communities of Verb. Please make sure to subscribe if you're listening to us on wherever you like to listen to your podcast. Uh, give us a thumb up if that is possible on your platform as well. You can reach out to Mr. Well Traveled on Instagram at Mr. Well Traveled. I am at Find Me in Seattle on the gram. And we look forward to talking with you in another two weeks.